With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Jason Calacanis founded a number of different companies, including Silicon Alley Reporter and Weblogs, which he sold to AOL 18 months after it launched. Jason also made an early bet on Uber that's paid off now in a big way. But he had a really hard time becoming successful, including a huge fall from grace when the dot-com bubble burst, which wound up putting his net worth at minus $10,000. A year earlier, I'm on Charlie Rose, I'm in The New Yorker, and I'm getting offered $20 million. And so all my power and money got taken away from me again. And this was like, am I a fraud? Did I just get lucky? Is the internet a fraud? Now he's clawed his way back and generated $100 million largely by angel investing. He told us about all that and more for this episode of Success, How I Did It. I'm your host and Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Allison Chantel. And oh, if you like this podcast, please like and subscribe and write a review on iTunes because that really helps. We're really, really excited to have you, Jason. Thanks for Thanks joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. First, I want to zip back in time. All the way. Take me back to your childhood. I yeah. know that you're from Brooklyn and not from like the cool part of Brooklyn. But Bear like Ridge. From, yeah, way out in Brooklyn. Yeah, we're now actually a lot of media people are living, which is hilarious to me because Bay Ridge is the last stop on the R train and the N train, which we called the rarely and the never when I lived there. And so, yeah, I came from humble beginnings, but not that humble. I have a paragraph in the book, like as much as I feel like an outsider, you know, we know that a white kid from Brooklyn, white male with a computer in 1982 is actually a pretty privileged kid. We were part of the lower part of the middle class, always in debt. My dad, a bartender, my mom, a nurse, but they bought me a thousand dollar computer and a 400 baud modem. And that got me started in the eighties, came to New York couldn't afford college because my dad's business got taken away from him by the feds because he didn't pay his taxes. So the family essentially went bankrupt. It was a pretty dicey situation in 1987 after the stock market collapsed. In 1988, I was going to school at Fordham. And suddenly, I wasn't going to be able to have any support going to college. So I had to work during the day, went to school at night, four nights a week, three-hour classes, you know, full credit load. And I had two skills, being a waiter and computers. And slowly but surely, I went from 350 an hour in the computer lab to fixing laser printers to working at Amnesty International as a PC specialist making 10 bucks an hour. And I uh, was just grinding it out in New York when the internet hit. I knew what this online thing was going to be big, but we also knew CD-ROMs were going to be big. So in Silicon Alley, we had a company called Voyager that was making interactive CDs. And then a bunch of other companies came along and Prodigy and AOL, and we started realizing, wow, there's something here. So I started Silicon Alley Reporter, 
in uh, 95. So and, before we get into yeah. that, though, first off, I'm very impressed that you were a good waiter because I used to be a waitress and I was the worst. Clumsy people do not make good waiters. They don't. Um, it's charming. But if you spill something on somebody, it's not good. But yeah, I was an incredible waiter. Well, there you go. But uh, tech seemed a little bit more lucrative as did your computer. I guess you figured that out, which is good. Did you have any other kind of traditional jobs before you jumped into the entrepreneurship train? Or I was always very entrepreneurial. And my dad used to have poker games in his bar after they closed at 4 a.m. So he'd play till 7, 8 in the morning. And a guy was into him for a couple of dimes, a couple thousand dollars, that's dimes in uh, gambling speak. And the guy couldn't pay. So my dad was like, hey, listen, you got to pay. Guy's like, listen, here's a copy of The Empire Strikes Back on a VHS tape. And The Empire Strikes Back had just been in theaters. It was 83, I think. And my dad's like, yeah, my kids love that. Brings me home, Empire Strikes Back. I start making copies of it. I started selling copies of Empire Strikes Back for 20 bucks, 30 bucks, and I sold dozens of them. So I was running an illegal Empire Strikes Back. I printed myself a business card that said Jason's Hot Tapes on it. And I would hand it to people, say, hey, I'm Jason Calacanis. Here's my hot tapes. And then I'd say, can I have the card back? Because it was just a laminated piece of paper. It wasn't an actual business card. And they'd be like, oh, okay, I thought it was a business card. I was like, no. I was like, how many copies of Empire Strikes Back do you want? <laughs> you know, in Brooklyn, we had a lot of different enterprises, to be candid, that we ran, um, scams. And uh, luckily, I got on the right side of this kind of thing. But, you know, there was, was a lot of opportunities to do things that were not legal. Well, it sounds like all that really shaped you and motivated you to be really ambitious and scrap your way to the top. Yeah, it's a trait that people either love me or hate me for. I've calmed down a little bit since, so the edge has been taken off. But yeah, for a long time, I felt very powerless, and I was very scared of being broke. Because when you have no money, if you've ever had that experience where your parents are fighting over having no money and you can't fix your car or you can't pay the mortgage. It's pretty terrorizing for a 10-year-old or an 8-year-old just to witness that. And I realize, you know, now at the age of 46, my God, I was just scared to death of being poor. And I was scared to death of being a failure. And so I think a lot of the fire I had that people saw early on, which looked kind of spastic at times or charming or just offensive, depending on the day you caught me, was really just my own fear of just, my God, being poor sucks. And so I just worked really hard with Silicon Valley Reporter and some of the other businesses to try to be powerful because I was a kid who had no power. I know a goal that you didn't quite hit. It sounds like you came close was to be a millionaire by 30. Um, yeah, I came close. <laughs> yeah. I had opportunities to it's sell. Not bad. You know, a millionaire by 30, you missed that one, but 100 million before 50, I think that's a good catch up. At a certain point, it all doesn't matter, which is kind of surreal. And when you come from nothing, you're basically just trying to get escape velocity, which means you and your family don't have to worry about being broke. And that's all I ever cared about. Once you have the first $10 million, it literally doesn't matter. Like I will go have a cheeseburger with Mark Cuban or Elon Musk or Travis or Chamath, just any friends of mine who are worth a billion or $10 billion, and we all eat the same cheeseburger. And if you order that cheeseburger with the foie gras on it and the black truffles, it's really not that different than the really good In-N-Out burger or a nice you know, Shake Shack burger. I and like the cheeseburger analogy. It doesn't matter if you have the foie gras or not. Honestly, like, and this is what millennials, I think, get right. You know, I was part of Gen X. I think you're kind of right on the border, right? Between a millennial and Gen yeah, X? Yeah, I think I'm strong millennial. Strong millennial. Okay. So, well, how many times did you Snapchat today? Because it's one o'clock. If you Snapchat, oh, yeah, no, more I'm th- an old millennial. Okay, good. There's you, two different kinds of millennials. If you didn't Snapchat before noon, <laughs> then you're not a millennial. I yeah, don't think I so. I Snapchatted yesterday. Close to Okay, time. great. So close to millennial. But anyway, 
the point is like I think experiences and your friendships and doing what you love it's all very nice to say all that but if you can't make your rent it's kind of a bummer each of those generations had sort of the right idea but not the full picture and I think it's a good balance to be had between millennials who are very focused on experiences and doing what's right in the world and then Gen Xers who were capitalists and independent thinkers and just wanted to rebuild the system. Between those two, I think the truth lies. Let's talk about how you scrapped your way out into your first 10 million. Yeah, um, and web starting with The first thing that really put you on the map in a big way, which was Silicon Alley Reporter. Yep. And so talk to me about what that was. These magazines were super cool then. Yeah. Like if you ran a magazine, you were just kind of a god in New York. Yeah, so running a magazine was the equivalent of having a top 50 podcast today that makes millions of dollars or a top 50 blog 10 years ago. 20 years ago, having a magazine in New York made you very powerful. I used to come in to New York on the subway and buy magazines and look at them, and I thought, wow, how do these people get on the cover of a magazine? They must be very powerful. And then I would look, and I saw the masthead, and I said, wait, who's David Hershkowitz at Paper? And, and who's Graydon Carter? And who's Jan Wenner? And I said, these are the really powerful people because they pick who's on it. So I had this revelation that if I started a magazine about the internet in 1995, that this would make me powerful. When I started the magazine, it was a 16-page photocopy. And within five issues, it was a glossy. And within 20 issues, it was 300 pages and had, at the peak, a million dollars in advertising and the best issue we ever did. It was very surreal because at that time, if you knew the internet and you had a magazine, that was an explosive combination, right? Just knowing what the internet was made you really an elite person in the world. And so it was very heady for me, and I got offered $20 million for the magazine, and I didn't take it. Then I wound up selling it to for two years. To sell the magazine. To, yeah, to Alan Meckler, who had internet.com, and he was a publicly traded company, and I didn't take it. That was my big opportunity. I owned 85% of it, or 90% of it. I'd given some employees a couple points. And so that was a big mistake. And when did you realize it was a mistake? Well, after the internet crashed and the revenue went from $12 million to $500,000 in two years, I wound up selling that company to Dow Jones, but I got two-year salary. And after they bought it, they basically said to me, we think there's better things for you to be doing than working here. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's okay, though. I'm kind of enjoying it. They're like, yeah, but we really don't need you here. And I was like, are you firing me? I have a two-year contract. They're like, we're going to give you two years of your salary. So you had an opportunity to sell for $20 million. You Didn't turned it down. It. You yeah. kept going, which a lot of founders do. They like Huge mistake. It's hard to predict how things are going to change. Absolutely. And then you sold it for nothing. Not a, nothing. I and got like yeah. 100 grand and then two years of salary. So... It was a kind of... Um, so basically 20 million to zero and then you get fired on top of it. Yeah. And I was really looking forward to like working on it. And so then 9-11 happens. I didn't realize it at the time, but I actually had PTSD. And I found out five years later when I went to therapy for it. I never talked about that really. But anyway, I had PTSD very hard. With the PTSD, I think I was a little depressed about the state of the world, like having watched so many people die in 9-11. When in I New lived York here. At the time. Yeah, I you lived on 26 in the West Side Highway. I mean, I experienced it firsthand. My brother's a firefighter. All of his friends died. It was pretty heavy. And we didn't know where he was that first day. And all communication went down. So it was like a dual blow. The stock market crashed. All the internet people were hustlers who crashed the stock market and hated a year earlier, I'm on Charlie Rose, I'm in The New Yorker, and I'm getting offered for $20 million. So it's kind of like you just get totally leveled as an entrepreneur. You're on the ground trying to get up like you've been knocked out, sucker punched by this stock market crash, and then 9-11 happens. So that was like the ultimate, what is life about? Wow, this is crazy. And so all my power and money got taken away from me again. And this was like, I wouldn't say earth shattering, but it was a really like, am I a fraud? 
did I just get lucky? Is the internet a fraud? And I had to really think about it. And everybody who was in the internet business gave up and went to Thailand or went on yoga retreats. And I said, you know, I, I don't think I'm a fraud. I think I'm actually pretty talented. I'm going to get back to work. What's working? And I looked at what was working in the world. And two of my employees had left and started blogs. Shenny Jardin went to Boing Boing. And Rafat Ali started paid content. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait a second. He started that when he was working for me. And I told him, Rafat, this will never be anything. You have no editor. You need an editor. Blogging is stupid. I was completely wrong. Editors were holding them back. And once you said, just publish when you're ready, they blossomed. And they knew better than their editors what they should publish. And they knew they should publish five times a day instead of once every week. And so... We started Weblogs Inc. with my partner, Brian Alvey. And you were like negative $10,000 in the hole here. Yeah, right? I, was, I was negative. Well, at that point, I wasn't exactly negative. I quickly became negative once we started it. And, and uh, you're how old at this point? Uh, I guess I'm 32 or something. And I said, Brian, you know, we need to do this. And we could do 10 blogs or 20. And he's like, or we could do 100. And I was like, that's it. It's 100. Let's get to 100 blogs. And so he builds the CMS. I start rounding people up. Did like DoubleClick even exist or Google AdSense or anything? What were you Well, Google AdSense about? was just starting. And in fact, when Google went public, they had two use cases in their first quarterly report, New York Times and Engadget and Weblogs Inc. And they did a huge blog post and like New York Times is making a bunch of money. And this little blog company, Weblogs Inc., just hit a million dollars in revenue on AdSense. And we were selling ads directly. So you start building this pretty good team. And within 18, 18 months, months, it's successful. 18 months, we have 100K in revenue. And What uh, was traffic like in those days? Yeah, you know, tens of thousands of people a day, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people a week. It was just getting started. But there was no competition. And so that was pretty great. And uh, AOL bought it for $30 million, And um, it was a huge payday. And, and so you learned from your first time of turning it exactly. down. Exactly. And then I was dangerous. And so how much did you make from a $30 million deal? Uh, well, I had one partner, Brian. We were equal partners. And then we had a small investor. So I did pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, I'll get the bank statements for so you. So about your first $10 million? Yeah. I think pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. There we go. It's a nice thing. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
So you now have another company that you've been working on for a while, since 2007, I think. Yeah, so then I... iterations. Yeah, then I worked at AOL for one year. I told them I put a year in. And then I did Mahalo and Sequoia back that. I had a really interesting idea. Take Wikipedia and make like rich search engine result pages because at the time, Google was like half spam. And so I said, what if you put content on the page, which Google now does, right? We were just way ahead of them. But I had seen some search engines in Korea... Daum and Naver were like including images on the search results, like weird stuff like that. And so I built this really cool system. We got to 10 million in AdSense revenue. And Google, my former partner, then basically pulled the rug out from under me, took away all of our traffic with something called the search update, Google Panda. I'm like calling everybody I know over there. And none of them would help us. And I was like, wow, this is another good lesson. Like, if you're a content business, you should not do business with Facebook and Google. You should not use their ad networks. You should promote your content on there lightly and get whatever traffic you can. But when they try to get you to come to their office or do their special partnership programs or now Facebook wants to do a subscription thing, for a content company to go do a partnership with Facebook after they've screwed content companies three or four times, I mean, you have to get your head examined. So it's been hard. This venture has not been easy. Well, here's the thing. We, we got to a $10 million run rate. We had 100 employees, and then they did this to us, and I had to lay off like 85 riders. Wow. You know what that's like? No, thankfully, I don't. Imagine five people crying in a meeting, mm-hmm. and you say, I'm really sorry. You'll be fine. We're going to give you severance. It's going to be great. We're going to help you find another gig, but we have no choice. We just lost all our revenue. And they say, I'm just sad because I like working here so much. I like the content we're making. And when I explained that to Google, they just didn't care. It's one of those things that's important as an entrepreneur to understand. If you want to have a startup, you just cannot have that kind of dependency. Mm-hmm. You can leverage a traffic source, but don't be dependent on it. You want to have that direct relationship, which is what I pivoted to inside.com is just email newsletters. And now it's doing wonderfully. We have 26 newsletters at Inside now. We're having close to a million opens a week. And we just turned on paid subscriptions. We have hundreds of them in the first nice. month. Well, another thing that you found out that you were really good at was investing. Yeah, And um, one of the things you're best known for in this book that you just wrote documents yeah. it is you were one of the first investors in Uber. Yeah. Number three or four. And you'd known Travis from a previous, Travis Klein. Yeah, as a journalist. I knew him from uh, Scour mm-hmm. and uh, Red Swoosh. I had interviewed him for Scour back in the day when he was 22 maybe. I don't know. And I was maybe 27. But yeah. So you knew him from those days and you ended up leading an early investment on behalf of Sequoia. You were a scout for them, I guess. Yeah. So what Sequoia did was Sequoia had an idea that for early stage investing that their founders that they had invested in would be a great way to find more founders. Great idea. So they said, here's a pool of capital. We'll split 50% of the gains with the scouts. That was pretty unprecedented. And uh, I hit Uber and Thumbtack in that first cohort in my first four investments. And those are two, obviously, unicorns and did really well. And so Uber at the time was like a one car city. service for the 1%. Uh, it was Lincoln Town Cars. Yeah, it was for the top 10% of the audience, probably. Did you just invest because you knew Travis and you thought he was a good entrepreneur? Or did you actually genuinely like the idea? Because at the time, it was I only love a the idea $4 million dollar valuation or something versus I, $69 billion now. Yeah, I love the idea from the get because I suffer from motion sickness pretty horribly. It's like my Achilles heel. So I would spend a hundred bucks on carry car service because they had really beautiful cars. And I sat in the front with a driver who was professional. When I saw that the same carry driver was using Uber, but charging 60 or 70 for the ride, I was like, this is incredible. And 
I don't have to have my assistant or I have to call ahead and book the person and have wait time. I just call it on demand. It was just obvious this was going to be a huge win. And the billing was all automatic. I could see the receipt and I could see the route. I was like, oh my God, this solves so many problems. So I thought it's a billion dollar company, candidly. But the thing about angel investing, which I get into the book a lot, is you actually don't have to understand the idea and you don't have to know if the idea is going to win. You just need to know if the person's going to win in their life. And for someone like Travis, he's a winner. He's going to win. I can just tell by looking at somebody if they'll be successful in their life. I don't even have to have a conversation. I just look at their eyes while they're talking, and it becomes very clear You're looking to me. at my eyes right now. Now I'm wondering what you think. You're going to be very successful. Oh, you are very you. successful. It's very <laughs> obvious to me. I can tell from the eyes. Ah. I just look in the eyes while they're talking, and when I ask them very open-ended questions, what are you working on? Why are you working on this idea? Why would this idea work now? Has something changed technologically or why now? I just have some very basic questions. So your book title says you know, how I turned $100,000 yep. into $100 million. Yep. How much of that $100 million is from that one good bet on Uber? The truth is the portfolio is worth much more than that, candidly. But I guess people right now would debate the value of Uber. So if Uber was worth half as much as it was at the peak, the title would be correct. So right now I would say... 60% of my portfolio's value would be Uber. But if you look at the fundamentals of the business, like you're growing a very large revenue number, 10% quarter over quarter, and they own 17% of DD. So it's kind of like DD will ultimately, in my mind, be a three, four, five hundred billion dollar company. That means Uber's stake in DD is ultimately worth more than what Uber's been valued at. Like, let that sink in for a minute. It's sort of like the Yahoo situation with Alibaba. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I think the Uber stake in DD would be worth $50 billion if it became a $300 million company. I think, you know. Wait, they think DD is going to be a $300 billion company? Oh, for sure. But so I think ultimately Uber becomes a $250 billion company and DD becomes a $250 company that Uber owns 70% of. That would be my broad strokes, you know, in the next three, four, five years, if it becomes public. If they're doing $10 billion in revenue a year. So is Uber generating $10 billion right now? Yeah. They said $8.5 billion in bookings. Yeah. They get 25% of that. So that's approximately just over $2 billion. So yeah. $2 billion times four, eight, nine, say $9 billion now run rate. So if you times that by 10 or 20, it would be 90 or 180 billion. Just to catch people up, because I don't know if they're going to listen at what point to this podcast. Yeah. But what's happening right now in the news is, first off, there was an engineer who said there was all this. She was it, harassed by her yeah, manager. Exactly. Yeah. And Loads HR ignored it, and it became this big problem. And yep. Uber looked into it. A huge investigation was done. They did the investigation themselves. 20 people were fired. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was Travis something. Travis left. Travis is no longer CEO. But Have you still seen on the Travis board. since? Like, is he a broken person? Like, I can't imagine. Well, I think the death of his mother right would break yeah. anybody tragically. Right. So, so personally I, for Travis, but I, he's a very strong person. Accident. He's got to recover from that, mm -hmm. and I think he will. He's one of the strongest people I know, and he's also one of the most sensitive and emotional people I know. People don't think that because they don't know him. And he cares very deeply about the people at Uber. He feels very bad about what happened. And he really wants to make it right. And he will. And he'll come back. And I think he's he going to pull Steve Jobs. You know, take a little break. 100%. Come back. Yeah. 100%. In the my meantime, prediction. any ideas on who's going to replace him? I don't. I mean, I have my favorites. Uh, who's your favorite? Well, Sheryl Sandberg is tremendous. Oh, she's never going to do it. I wouldn't say that. You think there's a chance? I always think there's a chance. I do think it would be a very unique opportunity for her to be the CEO, not the COO, hmm. for once. And she could build her own team. I haven't talked to her about it. And I would 
put it at low single-digit percentages. But I think the press likes to say never, but they're not insiders. And I'm an insider, and I can tell you it's never, never. I don't have inside information, to be clear. But being an insider amongst these type of situations, I almost always think everybody will hear everything out. Um, Hmm. And so I don't know where they are in the process. I have no information. And I've always had very little information. So let's get back to your book a little bit. Okay. And about... Oh, there's a book. I want to talk about a little bit more about how you find these people and then how you make a decision on them. Because you've been called a connector. Yeah, so, but that was I, a story in the New Yorker. Exactly, the, the New Yorker titled you The Connector. You have a huge network of people. How much of success is your network and who you know versus what you build and Okay, what you do? Okay, it's a good question. There really are three things that investors provide. Money, network, and advice. There are some other things, but those are the big broad strokes. And if you have all three, which I have, that really makes you desirable. And also, there's a kind of a fourth one, which is your social standing. So the network is critical. And a lot of people who are going to read your book might want to be you, but they won't have that network. You don't actually have to have the network, actually. And networks are easier to build than people think. Yeah, but these startup deals, you're not going to get into Uber without being in the network. Being networked is important. And I have some hacks in the book about how to do it. I tell people in the book, listen, do 10 syndicate deals with well-known syndicates, Gil Pinchina, Kevin Rose, mine, jasonsyndicate.com. Then you can invest a small amount, $1,000, alongside somebody who's putting money in, who's a known investor. And how does a syndicate work? So like you let just like the average Joe come in and invest alongside your name? So right now you have to be accredited for my syndicate at Jason Syndicate. We are starting to do with Seed Invest some non-accredited investor deals. So that's very new. But 5% of the U.S. population is accredited. You can look it up on the SEC's website. Just type accredited investor SEC into Google. It's the first link, I'm sure. Those are people who have a high net worth, let's say two or $300,000 in household income and a million dollars in savings. There's a couple of different ways you qualify. But non-accredited investors, I think, in the coming years are going to be able to have access to more deals. So I think there's a couple ways to get into it if you're not accredited. Being a consultant to the company, an advisor, which is how I started before I was accredited, that can get you shares in a company. And also doing these non-accredited deals on Seed Invest, Republic. The way a syndicate works is we have 1,300 people in our syndicate. I say I'm investing 25 to 250K in a company. Here's my thesis about the company. Here's a bunch of information that the company provided. And I send them like two follow-up emails. And if they want to invest, they invest. It's a great way to start because even though you're putting $1,000 in or $5,000 in, you can act like you put 10000 or 50000 in. So you can provide that same level of help. This is extremely right. risky for the average person to right. do. Right. So to de-risk it, do the $1,000 investments, 10 of them in year one. Take your time. Learn how to play poker at the low stakes tables. The other way to mitigate against mistakes is only invest in companies that have revenue or specific user growth patterns. So... There's no reason for a new angel to invest in startups that are pre-launched. You shouldn't do that because there are so many startups that are launched. You're much better off just picking from those. And if you're going to pick from those, look for the ones that have six months of traction data. It sounds like you think that in the future, money that you might have put towards the stock market, Mm -hmm. you think people will start putting that into early stage startups. If I was advising my parents or my brother, I would say 1% to 10% of your net worth but no more. And I would even say under 5% for somebody who needs the money at some point. If you have kids and a family and you're in private school, like I really don't recommend taking your 401k and mortgaging your house and putting in 100% into angel investing. That is 
insane. But what I like about angel investing is you have this outside chance of doing what I did and, and a lot of other angel investors have done, which is having life-changing money occur. And you really want to have a chance at life-changing money occurring somewhere in your portfolio or somewhere in your risk profile. I think having a chance to double my wealth or 10x my wealth with the angel investing, but then having my nest egg secure and balanced in a robo portfolio and not trying to change the dial on that too much. So part of this is that the startups are going public so late that there is not an opportunity for most people to get in early. But you're saying that that could change, and it almost sounds like people are investing changed. in you like you're a mutual fund or something. I think that it's already changed. I would say there's hundreds of people right now doing angel investing as their full-time career in Silicon Valley, whereas 10 years ago, it was dozens of people doing it, and they were doing it on the side. In the book, I lay out possible scenarios and how to reduce risk in the beginning and how to double down and triple down and quadruple down on the winners. So there's a lot of opportunity. So I've got one final question Here we for go. you. I understand that you bought the first ever Tesla, serial number 0001 or something. Well, I have number 16 of the Roadster. Okay. And then I have number one of the signature series of the Model S. Okay. How did you get the first ever Tesla? I was out at dinner with Elon, and Tesla was going out of business. They had three weeks of capital left. It was the financial crisis. And uh, SpaceX had just blown up the second or third rocket. We were eating a steak together in Hollywood. And I said, what's going on with SpaceX? I said, oh, I just blew up the third rocket. I said, whoa, that sucks. So what happens if you blow up a fourth? He's like, game over. It's not going to continue. He, he got that fourth rocket up. I said, what's going on with Tesla? Is it true you only have four weeks of capital left? He says, not true. I said, oh, great. He said, we have three. I said, oh, shit. <laughs> like, that's bad. He's like, what are you going to do? And he's, well, I'm, a friend of ours is giving me a, a loan to cover my personal expenses. He was negative. And a billionaire friend of ours was basically gave him a loan. I said, Elon, there's got to be some good news. He said, yeah, don't tell anybody, but let me show this. He takes out his BlackBerry and starts showing me the clay version of the Model 3. It was a full-size clay model. Like, there's people standing around it. I said, that's gorgeous. How much can you make it for? He said, well, it's going to go 200 miles. I think we can make it for 50 or 60. I was like, nice. I went home. I wrote two full checks for $50,000, and I wrote him a handwritten note. Elon, looks like an incredible car, dot, dot, dot. I'll take two, exclamation point, best Jason. Two or three years later, I get, congratulations, your serial number is 0001. Congratulations, your serial number is 0073. That's, uh, so I have number one, but I just saw Elon tweeting about the fact that he has number one of the Roadster and number one of the X, but he doesn't have number one of the Model S, so I told him he could have it back. You're going to give it back to Elon? Of course I'll give it back to Elon. Has he asked for it back yet? I'm going to see him next week, so if okay. I'll... Tell I'll, him we say hi. I will. And uh, if he wants it, he can have it, and he can have it for free, of course. Awesome. He's my friend. Well, thank you so much, Jason. It's been fun. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for listening to Success, How I Did It. For more episodes, subscribe on Acast or iTunes, and check out episodes we've done with Steve Ballmer, Cheryl Sandberg, LeBron James, and more.